From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. Spiritual abuse is is generally a form of emotional or psychological abuse, and it's perpetrated either by a religious leader or a group or within a religious context or has a religious or spiritual component. It usually involves coercion or control. Now, the question that I would always want to ask there from a theological angle is like, what are people being baptized into when that's what you're doing? Like, is that actually the gospel? Is that Jesus or is it something else? Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Dan Koch. He's the host of the You Have Permission podcast, and he's a doctoral student in counseling psychology at Northwest University in Kirkland, Washington. We're going to be talking about his podcast a little bit in this conversation, but we're also going to be talking a little bit about some of his doctoral work. It's a fascinating research study that has unearthed some new and, in some ways, provocative findings with regard to this question of spiritual abuse and the way in which Christianity in particular is changing in the 21st century. Dan Koch, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you so much for having me, David. Appreciate it. Well, I'm glad to get a chance to talk to you about this because like many of our listeners, I have been paying attention for probably the last 15 years to the changing demographics of particularly Christian belief, but also belief generally in America. And for those that have been paying attention, one of the main studies that came out, again, about 15 or 20 years ago was the Pew Research Study on Religious Life in America. It was a longitudinal study at that time. It was the largest study of its kind. And then also in the last couple of years, we've also had good research come out from PRRI, which is the Religion Research Institute, the Public Religion Research Institute. And that was the source of the information of sort of the loss of evangelical majority in America. So so we've got a good background of data to be talking about and to be contrasting with some of the things that you've been focusing on in your study. And so I wonder if you could take a moment and just tell us a little bit about what the overview is of what you're researching and what your study was looking at. Yeah, so I became interested in the topic of the, the term I'm using these days is spiritual harm and abuse. It, it's a little bit in flux. There are no agreed upon definitions of religious abuse, spiritual abuse. Do we put in harm? I, I add in harm just to emphasize that it is a continuum, that not everything we're talking about is necessarily abusive. Some of that is in the eye or the experience of the recipient of it. Some of it is in the eye of the beholder. Does spanking children count as abuse? You're going to get very different answers, for instance. Does using terror at like a hell house to motivate a religious decision, is that just wise or is that potentially abusive to children's psychology, right? That's why I call it harm and abuse. I became interested because my own personal experience is that I was the recipient of some of this harm 
around end times teachings when I was quite young, when I was in sixth grade. And I had panic disorder at that point in my life, and it triggered it in a big way. It stuck with me, really. I The last panic attack I had around that topic was like 10 years after that. So for at least 10 years, I had just this, these issues. And so when it came to thinking about a dissertation topic, this is kind of what I came to. And I found that you know, actually not a ton is known, sp- certainly very little is known about how prevalent various types of spiritual harm or abuse are. And so that's part of what we're talking about today. And then the other thing would be like, if you were trying to understand what are the, how does this thing break down? It's a big nebulous topic. There's sexual abuse, there's emotional verbal abuse, there's domestic violence and physical abuse. There's there's what we might call merely spiritual abuse, which just the only effects it really has is on one's religiosity or their spirituality. So I did a, basically it's factor analysis is the statistical term for it, but I built a scale for, you know, you a clinician could give it to a client, for instance, or a researcher could give it alongside other scales to look for correlations and relationships. So yeah, that's, it's a two-pronged effort uh, at the beginning here. And we're just getting started. So let me reflect back to you what I've heard and see if I've got it. So if a listener hears the term spiritual abuse, something that might flash in their mind is maybe somebody that's been in a cult. A clear example from my childhood would be the People's Temple down in Guyana, Jim Jones, people literally drinking Kool-Aid and dying from that experience. That's clear spiritual abuse and harm. But what I'm hearing you saying is that there's also activities that religious groups will undertake that are undertaken in their eyes for the child's own good or for the believer's own good. And these also, even though they're not done with a harmful intent, they can have very harmful results. Am I hearing that correctly? That's right. I would say the relationship between cults and other forms of spiritual abuse is like cults are in a sense like the obvious form of it. And there is a fair amount of research that has been done over the last 20, 30 years, really since the 70s on cults. An open question for me as I continue to dive into this is how much of that is relevant to what I'm looking at? There was also in the 90s a a bit of a spate of publishing around sort of church abuse and that kind of a thing that was mostly in the evangelical world. So one of my questions is what of this can all be pulled together here in the 2020s for something coherent? Jury's still out in my mind on that, but that's something that I'm working on. And then, yeah, so like the effects of spiritual abuse can be physical. So for instance, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe in blood transfusions. Well, you and I, what do we think the chances are that God is against blood transfusions? I would hazard to say quite low, and yet we know that many people will die without blood transfusions. So that could be closer to the Jim Jones thing. But then think of something like this. You are in a verbally abusive marriage. It's not physically abusive. You're the wife and your husband has not cheated on you and he's not hit you, but he's clearly verbally abusive. And a number of religious figures in a row in your community say, this is not grounds for divorce or even separation. In fact, this is something you need to forgive him for. He's not broken Jesus's rules or whatever. And then you're basically pressured to stay in an abusive marriage. That is not going to necessarily harm you physically or sexually or anything, but not only will it subject you to more 
emotional verbal abuse from your spouse, it also will likely have an effect on your ability to practice your faith because it is faith leaders who are basically misusing forgiveness teaching, misusing a literal reading of a couple verses to not have a compassionate understanding of like, you're being abused right now. And so it's going to affect your ability to be in either that church or religious community or maybe any other church or religious community. And that's actually something I'm very concerned about. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and our guest today is Dan Koch. He is the host of the You Have Permission podcast, and he's a doctoral student in counseling psychology at Northwest University in Kirkland, Washington. We're talking about some research he's been doing for his doctoral work around the idea of spiritual abuse or spiritual harm and abuse. Okay, so we've begun to get into this idea of spiritual harm and abuse, and you've laid out for us that sometimes that abuse is physical, it it leaves physical effects on people, but also that abuse can be mental in some ways, and that it's not always simply that a person is wishing to do harm to another person, although that does happen, but also there are examples of where for a person's own good, at least according to that community, a harmful effect happens, even though the intent was not harmful. So I imagine that this is going to push a lot of buttons for various religious communities, because a lot of religious communities, at least, and I grew up in the South, and so we can think about evangelical religious communities, but there are others, they have the sense, and this is going to be my way of phrasing it, not theirs, and I hope that I'm not caricaturing them, but the idea is somehow that the world is a burning building. And it's the job of the believer to run into that building and by any means necessary, get as many people to safety. And safety means right belief, right right behavior, those kinds of things. So when your child is suddenly walking out into the middle of the street and you roughly grab your child and bring them back to safety on the curb, very few people would say that you're abusing that child. And so when a believer says, I'm simply doing the same thing to the lost and the sinful people in this world, I'm grabbing them by any means necessary, and I'm pulling them to spiritual safety. How does your research begin to address that kind of mindset? And I guess let's start there, but then I want to ask how you would answer that. But let's start, first of all, with how you account for that kind of mindset. How I account for the mindset is that it is, a lot of it is theology. So I've been really enjoying this Christianity Today podcast that they've been doing called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. It's about Mark Driscoll and Mars Hill Church in Seattle. If you're plugged into this world, it was a massive news story. It was all over national news as well. Over 10,000 members at many campuses and the whole thing imploded almost overnight. Now, A lot of people were very abused in that situation. But here's what I think. If you asked American Christians, especially evangelical Protestants, but I would hazard to say other groups as well, if you gave them the cost-benefit analysis, let's say, of there's going to be a narcissistic pastor who abuses individually 200 people in some way, But 5,000 people, quote unquote, come to Christ through his work. Now, we have to really unpack what that means, but let's just say that's what you told them. I think a lot of people take that deal. I think a lot of people, honestly, if you push them against it, they say, I do want to work for a healthy church. I want the church to be healthy. But at the end of the day, souls saved are the only dollar in the bank. That's the only real currency. Now, if you have that theology, 
most of what I'm talking about is not going to matter to you unless I can frame it in the way of it's actually going to hurt people coming to the Lord. Now, I don't think everybody believes that. I don't think all evangelicals believe that. I think that actually a lot of what I'm measuring here is stuff that basically all Christians would agree on. One of the really interesting items that's in Dr. Lisa Oakley's study from 2012 that she conducted in the UK is this idea of feeling free to express unhappiness. And I found that 60% of people in my sample, at least sometimes, so this is more than once or twice, felt unable to express unhappiness in church. Now, I think this is the kind of thing that everybody can get behind. There's not a single version of Christian theology that says expressing unhappiness at church is wrong, is sinful, is against the gospel, right? So there are things that are going to be it's going to be hard to get some people on board with, but then there are things that I think are really quite agreed upon across the board. Why would we not be able to be unhappy? That There's something sick going on in a group like that. Of course, this is not 60% saying it all the time, but at least sometimes this has happened to them. So what's going on there? What is the kind of culture of conformity that has sprung up against even our stated beliefs, even as conservative Christians? Now, we're going to get into all of this as our conversation continues, but as we're moving towards the first break in the couple minutes we have before that, it sounds to me like what you're saying is that really what we're looking at here is not simply a psychological state and not simply a physical state, but that there's a correlation with that and certain types of theology. Now, am I overstating that connection or would you, drawing from what you've just said, is there really a way of mapping certain theologies onto certain types of spiritually abusive practices and states? That's a really good question. I, I want to be very careful that I don't want to draw specific parallels without sufficient research to back them up. I think that at a general level, we can agree that there is copious evidence that our beliefs affect our actions, our behaviors, and our feelings, right? So yes, there is at least some correlation. If you are a church that holds to this soul saved dollar in the bank kind of theology, you're not going to worry about freaking out a few teenagers with your hell house. Yeah, I, do you know what I'm talking about? These like kind of Halloween salvation-based teenagers are drinking and dying in cars. It's all acted out and, and points to a decision for Christ, right? You're not gonna worry about the effects that that kind of sort of violence and terror might have on some percentage of the teenagers who walk through there or children who walk through there that have anxiety disorders, for instance, or whatever. You're not thinking about that because the good outweighs the bad, if that's your theology. But it's not a simple one-to-one, and I, w- I don't want to overstate that relationship without much more research to really be able to draw that out. It is an interesting future direction for research, though. We'll be getting into all of this as our conversation continues, but for right now, we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Dan Koch, and he is a podcaster. He's the host of the You Have Permission podcast. He's a doctoral student in counseling psychology at Northwest University in Kirkland, Washington. We're talking about some of his doctoral research looking into spiritual harm and abuse. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. 
Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. Today, we're speaking with Dan Koch. He is the host of the You Have Permission podcast, and he's a doctoral student in counseling psychology at Northwest University in Kirkland, Washington. He's been doing research on spiritual harm and abuse, and we're talking about some of his findings in our conversation today. Before we left off, we we were setting the stage with regard to what the broad definitions of spiritual harm and abuse are, and we started to look at a couple of examples of that. But I want to continue with this and bring in some of your findings as well. So we've talked about, and you've mentioned a couple points, this idea of a hell house. And for listeners that are unfamiliar with that, it's kind of analogous to a haunted house, but every scene, every room that you're moving from has a kind of spiritual or moral message, like you have a choice to turn away from your sinful behavior that led to this death and mayhem and destruction. But it's not just hell houses and those kind of once a year things, but there's also a mindset that lives year round. I'm thinking in particular of like the books by Tim LaHaye, the Left Behind series, or Frank Peretti's This Present Darkness. Like there's an entire industry out there that is designed particularly to make young people but adults get caught up in this too, to imagine that they are in the final days and that somehow their momentary casual decisions in life have cosmic importance. Now, at the beginning of the conversation, you mentioned that you yourself got caught up in this and it it had some consequences for you. And I want to be careful because if you're not comfortable talking about this, I I want to, to limit our scope with this. But to the extent that you're comfortable talking about it, I'd like to invite you to draw together Connect some of those dots for me and my listeners about some of these products like the Left Behind series or Hell Houses and the kind of physical and mental experiences that you had trying to incorporate these things into your daily life. Yeah, I want I want to be careful. I, I don't want to say that all instances of Hell Houses are always spiritually abusive or anything like that. But I will tell you about my own story. And, and David, I, I score very low on personality tests, privacy in, indices. <laughs> so I am an open book and happy to talk about it. So what happened for me was I was in sixth grade and I was given a book by an adult at my Christian school called, it was either the title or the subtitle, 96 Reasons Why Christ Will Return in 96. It's a play on the very popular pamphlet that some people may have heard of from 1988 of the same name. Um, And it basically, it clocked September of 96 as the time that Jesus would return. And this was April or so. So I've got a handful of months. I am 12, 13 years old, and I was not ready for it. This exploded my world in a kind of a way, and it did it with explicit reference to my faith. Even though I was young, but I was a practicing Christian, uh, whatever that means for a 12, 13-year-old, I took my faith seriously. I had an anxiety disorder that was not yet diagnosed in me, but I had one. And this really upended my life. So the problem I have, especially with the end time stuff, is I'm trying to be really delicate around not saying too much that the research would warrant. But like premillennial dispensationalism is like wrong. I mean, it's like false. I, I Technically, I know I can't know that. 
But if you get any biblical scholar or ecclesiological scholar on here that is worth their salt, they will explain to you that this is like a very tenuous, very internally inconsistent way of interpreting the text. And so it's not it's not careful. It's not carefully done work. And that's part of what this is about, is it's about having more care, that we do have vulnerable members of our populations, of our churches, of our you know listenerships, of our sermon series, whatever, our small groups, our missions organizations, et cetera. There are vulnerable people. And if we're being careful and rigorous and telling the truth and that truth is really upsetting to people, okay, that might be that maybe that's unavoidable. And maybe there are just other solutions for that. Those people have to have somebody in their life that maybe just any talk around infidelity is going to be very upsetting to someone. Okay. All right. So then you'd want to be careful with that. But if we're also, if we're just sort of launching stuff out there that really works, it's very efficacious. We get numerical returns in terms of baptisms or commitments to Christ, but it might be false and it might be abusing people. That's where I start to worry more. Now, I want to make sure that I've heard you correctly and that my listeners have heard you correctly. So you're talking about situations where looking at the raw numbers, a megachurch might say, well, we did a sermon series on Ecclesiastes and baptisms did not go up. We did a sermon series on Hellfire and we noticed that our baptisms went up by 13%. So maybe we should do more series on Hellfire. Is that the kind of corollary that I'm hearing or would you say it in a different way? Sure. To bring back in the Mark Driscoll, Mars Hill type thing, it's like he got up there and regularly yelled at people and espoused sort of the strongest type of neo-Calvinist reformed theology of predestination. And some of you in this room are matchsticks for God, meant to be burned. And he got a lot of these, especially young men, to feel like they really needed to do something and change their lives. And some of them are on the podcast today talking to the host, the interviewer, and like being very grateful for this kick in the pants that they got. So in terms of being effective, the Jonathan Edwards sinners in the hands of an angry God, like this is repeated so often in part because people see whether or not they're measuring with numbers, they at least see implicitly that this stuff works. It gets butts in the seats. It gets decisions made. Now, the question that I would always want to ask there from a theological angle is like, what are people being baptized into when that's what you're doing? Like, is that actually the gospel? Is that Jesus? Is it the is it traditional or historical Christianity in any sense? Or is it something else? Are you being baptized into the cult of personality of Mark Driscoll? Well, that's probably quite a bit less valuable than being baptized into the body of Christ, right? So, or it's maybe it's both, but but you just yeah, you it's hard to talk about, right? Because the lines get very blurry and I'm tripping over words as I'm trying to unblur them verbally. But yeah, that's what I'm getting at is that it's about carefulness and not just like going with the whiz bang sort of obvious numerical powerhouse stuff. Now, when I make anecdotal observations about these kinds of communities, you've mentioned the young men who really resonated with Mark Driscoll's kind of fire and brimstone, hyper-Calvinist kind of sermon messages. So I see as an observer 
in a, as a non-rigorous observer, I'm seeing that there are certain types of men, particularly, that really get into the machismo, the kind of I'm tougher than you spiritual walk, and they really resonate with them. It, it feeds something in their soul that as Americans is ripe for the picking. Now, that's my non-rigorous observation. Is this something that your study here in your surveys, is this something that is borne out by data, or did you look in a different direction than those kinds of questions? I looked in mostly a different direction. I'm merely using it as an example of saying, like, sometimes potentially abusive stuff is very effective on the ground. As far as what the church is seeking to measure, what they are basing their efficacy on, sometimes in good faith. For instance, just a Baptist church that baptisms means salvations, right? I mean, or it's the clearest number we have to show that people have come to Christ at our church. People can believe that in all earnestness with a, without a negative bone in their body, right? So, no, I, I didn't look particularly at this question of sort of masculinity. That's a very interesting potential future direction, though, David. Thank you for the idea. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Dan Koch. He is the host of the You Have Permission podcast, and he's a doctoral student in counseling psychology at Northwest University in Kirkland, Washington. He's done a really amazing bit of research about spiritual harm and abuse, and we're talking about that research today. So let's take a moment and get into some of the structure of your study. About how many people did you talk to, and what were the demographics involved in who you talked to? Yeah, so I was very fortunate numerically. I ended up with a sample of over 3,200 respondents. They completed a 66-item survey plus a bunch of demographic information. And I found that, you know, so I, I host You Have Permission, and it's, it's like a fairly progressive Christian podcast, so it's definitely more left-leaning. And I also got a lot of participants from people that I happen to know on Facebook or Twitter sharing the survey out. It just had its own life. And what I attribute that to is something that one of my advisors, Paula Swindle, who's also a spiritual abuse researcher herself, what she told me is that when she presents on spiritual abuse at any kind of conference or function, she says, the amount of research I have to draw on is inversely, <laughs> inverse proportion to how packed the room is. So there is immense interest in this topic. And I, to be clear for methodological nerds out there, I didn't say that's what the survey was. I didn't say I'm measuring abuse because that would have messed with the numbers. But it does seem like people shared it out because they were like, this was interesting. And I got a lot of emails saying, thank you for putting the survey out there. People literally said that. It was helpful to just take this and see that there was language around some of this stuff. So I just think that points to a kind of a, there's a thirst for more information on this topic. People have a vague sense that this is something that they could be thinking about, but there's not a lot out there. So yeah, 3,200, 43% male, 54% female, 91% white. So that's one of the limitations. A lot of Protestants, 66% Protestant, only 3% Catholic, 14% nuns, nothing in particular, 11% atheist or agnostic, about 12% LGBTQ. So that's probably a little higher than the general population. And that's kind of who I heard from. So I want to ask a couple follow-on questions. So a listener may hear you describing what you just did and say, wait, 
they got a survey, but they didn't know what the survey was about. So first of all, how does that connect with actual validity? How can you ask someone something and get useful information when they don't actually know the question that they're answering? And then also a listener might hear 3,200 people, there's millions of Christians. How does that in any way give us anything that is useful? So connect those dots for us, those that might have some skepticism just based around those two items. Yeah, well, first, I, I will happily admit that uh, this is not, you know, a, a nationally representative sample of Americans. That is a future lane that I hope to go into. I would I will be trying to get a grant to run this or a very similar survey on a nationally representative group, much like, you know, polling firms and, and Pew and all of that, all the, those guys do. So this is not that. And I, I'm not I'm not getting out over my skis in, in terms of what we can say. But actually, if you were to say hey, please take my spiritual abuse survey, that would actually be less valid because the type of person who's more incentivized to take that, who wants to talk about their spiritual abuse, now they're gonna be more likely to take it. And someone's gonna be like, oh, I haven't experienced any spiritual abuse, so I, I don't need to take that survey. They don't wanna hear from me. You see, that would actually be worse. So it's better to just say, it's a church experiences survey, which is how I talked about it, right? Now, it is also possible that once people took it, they recognized, oh, this is about negative experiences. And they might think, I've got a few friends. Maybe this researcher would like to hear from them about their negative experiences. So that's the kind of stuff we have to be careful of. That's why we can't say this is a representative sample. It's not. But there are some reasons to believe that it's not wildly off. In why you wouldn't say that, hey, this is a spiritual abuse survey I'm hearing you saying that there would be a natural bias for certain people to say, ooh, I want to take that survey because I've got an axe to grind. But I'm also hearing you saying that once people have taken the survey, they might introduce their bias as they share it with others. And that causes you to be a little skeptical about how representative the results are. Now, when I say it that way, have I got it or would you say it in a different way? No, that's right. There are also people who might take it and go, man, this liberal university researcher, I'm going to send it to a bunch of my conservative friends so that he knows that the church isn't bad. You can't really control if if you do. That's called snowball sampling. It's very common, especially for people who don't have a big research budget to to use snowball sampling like they're allowed to send it to other people or encouraged to. Now, in this case, that was we determined that was with my committee, we determined that was worth doing because the prevalence info is not the only info we were going for. We're also doing this factor analysis work. And for that work, it is a lot less important that the sample is representative. And of course, there's always a future opportunity for me to get some funding to do a representative sample. And then that could be the sort of gold standard of the prevalence info. And if you've been presented then as a listener with survey numbers, what I'm hearing you saying is that survey numbers are are never just neutrally informative. You want to be looking at the footnotes and you want to be looking at the limitations. And what I'm hearing you saying is that when you are bringing these results forward, you're foregrounding those kind of limitations. This isn't meant to, t to tell us the truth about American religiosity generally. It's telling us certain things that lead to more interesting questions that we could then develop other instruments to explore. But at each, at each step, you're wanting to not, to, to use your words, not get out over your skis. You're not wanting to say more than the data actually says. Is that a fair 100%. characterization? That's right. And firms like Pew or Robert Jones at Public Religion Research Institute and Gallup these are nationally representative samples, and, and they say that, and that is, those are very statistically strong methods, and they're always tweaking that, like, 
how many people answer their phones anymore. They're always like the people who are professional pollsters are working on getting that as accurate as they possibly can. This is not that. This is suggestive data, right? So we can say, I would take all these particular percentages with a grain of salt and think they're probably a little lower than that. But I think there's also reason to believe they're not that much lower, which is that my uh, res results accord very nicely with Lisa Oakley's results from her 2012 UK study. So it's a different country. It's all churchgoers. Mine were not all churchgoers. I have a lot of atheists and former religious people. And on a lot of these items, we're getting almost exactly the same percentage answers. So it's somewhat stable. But again, it's a younger demographic. It's a more theologically liberal demographic. For instance, I asked a question about the Bible taken from the general social survey, which is a representative sample. And I have a lot fewer biblical literalists than the general population. And from my data, it looks like more conservative people actually report less abuse, which I think there are any number of reasons that might be the case. Terminology, they are not as into sort of deconstructing their Christian experience as liberals might be especially younger ones like me who are raised evangelical. So there's all kinds of stuff. So we just have to be careful that we are not claiming more than the data supports. Now, as I'm hearing you describing this, what I'm realizing is I started out the conversation sort of contrasting stuff like what Pew Research Group did or PRRI does and what you were doing. But what I'm hearing in your responses is that you look to their data and you look to the way that they have described the kind of numbers in the landscape generally. And then you're looking at your own numbers. And in doing that, you're saying, so we had an overrepresentation here. We had an underrepresentation here. So talk to us a little bit about the way in which you yourself are using other research data to help to fine tune the results of your own research. Yeah. So the most important is that Oakley and Kinman study from 2012 in the UK. That is the only other prevalence of spiritual abuse research done in the Western world, to my knowledge, that I could find in any of the literature. So five or six of my 66 prompts were directly taken from their work. And that was on purpose. I was curious. They were good questions. But also, I wanted to be able to check them against it. So that was the best thing I had at that time. And eventually, I think, I hope, I will have a representative sample. And then we can really say, okay, now we've got a gold standard to start from, like PRI, like Pew, and go from there. But until then, it's just we're suggesting things. And honestly, if we said something like white, younger Protestants and former Protestants, now we're getting closer to what we could say. This is how that population actually sees their time and experience in the church. That Now we're getting closer to, yeah, we could maybe say that, but that doesn't necessarily mean black Protestants. It doesn't necessarily mean Asian Protestants or Catholics, right? So we do want to be careful. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Dan Koch. He's the host of the You Have Permission podcast, and he's a doctoral student in counseling psychology at Northwest University in Kirkland, Washington. Part of his doctoral work has been looking at the idea of spiritual harm and abuse, and his doctoral research has led him to create a survey that has given us some pretty amazing and provocative results that we are discussing in this hour. So we'll take that up after the break. Uh, we'll be back in just a moment. Each week here at Things Not Seen, we dive deep into the tough questions about culture and faith. 
Questions are a sign of growth, and it's way easier to hear the answers when others join in the asking. That's why I'm excited for our sponsor, BeADisciple.com. It's the social hub for all your spiritual quandaries. One click away at BeADisciple.com. Scroll through their affordable, ecumenical, accredited, short-term online courses, all taught by content experts. Here you'll be in the company of others where it's safe to discuss hard questions. If you have questions and are looking to grow, enroll in a course today and ask away at BeADisciple.com. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. Today, we're speaking with Dan Koch. He is the host of the You Have Permission podcast, and he's a doctoral student in counseling psychology at Northwest University in Kirkland, Washington. He has been researching spiritual harm and abuse, and today we're talking about the results of some of the surveying he's been doing amongst populations, particularly younger Protestant populations, but we can also see some possibilities of connections to wider questions to be asked. But that kind of leads us then to ask, when we're talking about spiritual abuse, and we we talked in the first part of the hour of some examples of that, when we see a a glaringly abusive situation like the People's Temple in the 1970s or the kind of toxic hyper-masculinity of someone like Mark Driscoll. But I'm wondering, in your research, in, in your work with others that are doing this research, what is the most pernicious, the most pronounced kind of spiritual abuse or spiritual harm that really prompts us to ask these questions in the first place? So, David, imagine there are two patients in a hospital and they each have a cast on their leg because they had a broken leg. One of them broke his leg climbing a tree and fell down. But the other one broke her leg because in doing a procedure, the doctor broke her leg. And she did not go to the hospital expecting to get a cast on a broken leg. She went to check out, I don't know, a skin lesion or something, right? And so it's the difference between being hurt by the hospital or just the hospital helping you because you got hurt. One thing that we can be quite confident about through the research is that both religiosity and spirituality, which are measured and, and defined differently in the research, they are both associated with better outcomes from traumatic events. They are both associated with more post-traumatic growth. So religion and spirituality, however that ends up in your life, is one of the best tools you have to actually recover from being abused. And yet, if you are spiritually abused, then that is undercutting one of your best mechanisms. And as you said, you come from the South. As you well know, for some people, their church community is their best mechanism for healing from something traumatic or painful in their life. And that is, you see this in a lot of the clergy abuse scandals in the Catholic church, right? They're like, this was the priest, like this was God's representative. How do I go to God now when that happened? To me, that is the saddest thing about it. It's the most pernicious thing about it. It is the most unique thing about spiritual abuse. 
But then bringing back to an earlier part of the conversation, when the person who is creating this, and in, in your illustration, it would be the doctor who has then broken the leg of the person that came to the hospital for something else, the doctor is convinced that they're doing the right thing. How do you begin to unpack those levels? How do we begin to undo the, the blindness that comes to saying, no, I'm helping this person, I'm not hurting them? Well, I think that to stretch the metaphor perhaps long, farther than it ought to go, most doctors don't think that breaking the girl's leg is the right thing to do. But it would be more like this doctor had insufficient training and did a procedure and didn't know how to use this machinery and something happened and it went wrong and something slipped and her leg got broken, right? I can't comment on people's internal motivations and I don't have good data on how pastors, for instance, see this stuff, another great future research horizon. But I would guess that a lot of this stuff can happen from just the lack of training and understanding by well-intentioned leaders. Now, I should say one of the categories here is uh, that I uncovered in the factor analysis is authoritarian leadership. These are often narcissists. And with a narcissist, of course, there is like the casual term and then there's like narcissistic personality disorder, which is a diagnosis. And those are thrown around haphazardly. But the more the closer you get to narcissistic personality disorder, now we're talking about bad actors who really don't care what their congregants go through, that if push comes to shove, everything they're doing is for them, really. But if you don't have a situation like that, you can still abuse people unwittingly. And that's why I think actually medical care is a good analogy because some denominations have more of these kind of safeguards. They have more training around this stuff, more pastoral care training, more like when do you refer to a psychologist type of training? They're more thickly entwined with the better institutions that we have in American life. Well, now you have me questioning some of my own parenting and some of my own kind of walk with my faith. Let me give you an example of what I mean. So I have two children, 11 and 9, and both of them were baptized as infants, which means that before they had the chance to say yes or no, my wife and I made the decision that they are going to be members of this church and they're going to go through the initiation process. We did that for deeply theological reasons, but we took away the ability of them to make choices. So that's a kind of spiritual mark that was given to them without their permission. We can also think of young men who are raised in the Jewish faith and are circumcised. So that's a physical mark that is made on them before they have the volition to say whether they want this done to their body or not. So in the scope of your research, would those kinds of markers of belonging that happen before a person can say yes or no, would those also be examples of spiritual abuse? Or would you classify them differently than some of these other things that you're saying? Personally, I would classify them differently. So the definition I'm rolling, going off of, which is mostly taken from, from Lisa Oakley, is that spiritual abuse is, is generally a form of emotional or psychological abuse, and it's perpetrated either by a religious leader or a group or within a religious context or has a religious or spiritual component. It usually involves coercion or control. I would not say we circumcised our son. I don't think we coerced or controlled him. We made an informed decision with our doctor weighing the possibilities of further infection and what does the research say about what it would cost him to be circumcised? What happens if he has to get it later? How much worse is that? What do we know about how painful it is for him at 10 days or whatever old he was. 
That is, I think, quite different than most of what we're talking about here. What we're talking about here is like you could make an argument that you should never do any, have any say on your children's religiosity or spirituality without their consent. But that would basically preclude all manner of teaching and formation. We don't say that you should not teach children anything without their consent. I didn't get my consent to go to third grade but I had to go and learn what I learned in third grade. So I'm personally less convinced by that line of, of argument. And it's more about developmental appropriateness. That's where I'm very interested in, in when we start talking about children. And my story of being in sixth grade, I think that was developmentally inappropriate to tell me that my life was gonna end in five months because of some very speculative reading of the Bible. That's not a good thing to tell a sixth grader, right? But that's, it's in a different category than baptism, circumcision, stuff like that. So what I'm hearing you saying is that when we're looking at this question of spiritual harm or spiritual abuse, it's not like there are black and white issues all the time, but rather there are a dance of different factors that have to be weighed. One of those factors I'm hearing ringing out is the individual's own perception of the experience. How does a survey like this account for those individual perceptions of experience over against what we might call, and I am hesitating to use this term, but a more objective set of markers for abuse? Yeah. So first of all, you get a little bit of objectivity in the aggregate, right? So if you're asking 3000 people and it's going to mean different things to different people, that's fine. But you can look at the averages and say, well, this many people see it this way. And you can just say that. For instance, I don't say that I'm measuring spiritual abuse. I am measuring people's self-reported experiences of potentially harmful or abusive experiences. That's, that's the real sentence, right, of what it's actually measuring. And in the research articles and stuff, it'd be phrased as such. So that's one part of it. Another part is that like when we're looking at like these factors, so these seven underlying factors of this larger umbrella of spiritual harm and abuse, that kind of work, it's a little bit technical, but it doesn't rely on the same sort of representative sample type stuff. What it's basically saying is when people report this, what else do they also tend to report? And those things tend to cluster together over a sample of 3,000 people. So in that instance, it is objective in the sense of, well, if I had put different prompts in, then it, if the survey were different, it would give me different answers. But given these 66 items, if someone says, yeah, I was deterred from seeking mental health treatment, or medication for depression. They are more likely to have said that prayer replaced needed medical interventions. For instance, I'm looking at my list here, and that makes sense. Those would clump together. It's a type of a community where medical care is really not given what we what I would consider its due place in life and that it's over-spiritualized. So those things will clump together. They'll hang together. Whether or not people's exact recollection is correct, or if certain people would consider something to be more or less abusive, I'm actually just asking how often things happened. So as long as you define the word the same, you're going to tell me about how often it happened. And as we've said, some of those words are in the eye of the beholder, but it doesn't mean we can't get any useful information. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're talking today with Dan Koch. He's the host of the You Have Permission podcast, and he's a doctoral student in counseling psychology at Northwest University in Kirkland, Washington. We're talking about his research into spiritual harm and abuse. 
Well, in our conversation, a couple of names have come up. Lisa Oakley is a person that you've been working with on these. She's been doing this these kinds of this kind of research as well. You also mentioned at one point Paula Swindle, and I'm wondering how big is the landscape on this kind of question of spiritual harm and abuse? If a person wanted to go to Amazon and start looking up books about this, what would they find? A lot of literature, or is this still a very new field? So in one sense, it is a small field in terms of there are very few active academic researchers on the topic of religious or spiritual harm and abuse. As I said, there is some cult-related research that goes back a few decades, and I've yet to see that get synthesized, but that's something that I'm interested in, and, and perhaps it is out there, and I've yet to read it. But in terms of what we might call like the contemporary conversation around this topic, there's not a lot. There's not a lot, especially in the Western world. But on Amazon or anywhere you get your books, Dr. Lisa Oakley did co-write a popular level book with Justin Humphreys that covers all of her research and sort of the best qualitative research that I've seen as well out there. It's called Escaping the Maze of Spiritual Abuse, Creating Healthy Christian Cultures. And actually what Lisa and Justin did in that work is they've They've even gone a step beyond the spiritual harm and abuse topic into what's the opposite of that? And how do we create a church culture or a Christian group culture, for instance, that is resilient to this kind of stuff, that is anti-abusive, if you will? And that's really exciting. I'm, I'm very excited about their ongoing research into that question as being the logical extension of the kind of darker, dreary stuff. I'm personally very comfortable dealing in the dark and dreary, so I might toil here a while longer while Dr. Oakley figures out how to solve this stuff, but that's it to each their own, right? So this resilience that you're talking about that gets raised in Justin Humphreys and Lisa Oakley's book, Escaping the Maze of Spiritual Abuse, the resilience is it's not a Pollyanna view that says religion is a natural good, and it's not a doom and gloom that says all religion is bad. It says religion is a positive force for good, particularly for post-traumatic recovery. Some religious communities are harmful, and they are, they're, they're impeding post-traumatic recovery. What does a post-traumatic recovery-informed church look like? Now, as I make those kind of connections, am I getting the rhythm of what Oakley and Humphreys are doing, or is it, would you say it in a different way? I would just add, I think that's right, but I would add that there's actually quite a bit of evidence that religiosity and spirituality are just broadly speaking good for people in the, in the statistical aggregate. So religion is not just good for healing from trauma. It's good for adolescents, avoiding risky sexual behaviors, drug use. It is marital satisfaction. It is longevity. It's all it's cancer diagnoses and processing that. I mean, there's there's just a lot of evidence. It's not most of it is not Christianity specific or Protestant specific, but there's really just a global research consensus that religious people are happier, generally speaking, and all, all these other kind of both mental and physical well-being aspects. There are strong associations. Now, that does not mean that <laughs> that where this stuff comes in is that's not always the case because religion is so powerful that it can be weaponized. So the analogy I have been fond of recently is that religion is like nuclear fission. You can use nuclear fission to create basically free energy for millions of people if you keep all the right controls in place. It's like when there aren't nuclear fallouts 
and reactor busts, it's incredible. It, you know, dwarfs the competition. But you can also use nuclear fission to blow out a reactor, as in Japan a decade or two ago, or you can use nuclear fission to create the first atomic bomb and kill 100,000 people in an instant. So religion is in a sense like that. It's so deep and central to the human experience that it has tremendous power for growth, healing, creating community, pro-social behavior, all that stuff. And yet, if you are a narcissist and especially you don't want to have to go to school, get you an evangelical pastorship and you can just start Screwing people over. I mean, you can if you're charismatic, if you have the right personality type and you really just want a bunch of people to worship you. Well, I got a plan for you. So that's how I that's how I see that landscape there. As you were doing this research into spiritual harm and abuse and you began to come up with these findings, what were some of the findings that surprised you the most? That's a good question. I will say I was pretty surprised by the expressing unhappiness in church thing. You know, I've been in churches where they have said, we're going to do a season where we really focus on lament, the biblical concept of lament. It's all over the Psalms, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes. And I, so I knew that was an issue, but that 60% number is pretty high. Oh, actually, I'm just checking it. 70%, 70% in my sample reported feeling unable to raise questions and issues at least sometimes. And almost half, 45%, often or all the time. So that was surprising. Over half of the respondents of my survey report at least one anxiety attack triggered by religious stimuli. Now, people don't necessarily know what counts as an anxiety attack clinically or whatever. One in six reported this often or all the time. And a full 80% report avoiding religious activities or settings to reduce distressing feelings at least once or twice. That's a big number. Now, again, I think this is skewing a bit toward that younger kind of podcast savvy type sample, but that's still a really big number that there's a lot more sort of internal anxiety going on than I think we realize with people in religious settings who have experienced some of these negative things. There's an item around narcissistic leadership that I found troubling. 46% of people, at least sometimes, reported feeling special when in my pastor's good graces and feeling ignored when I wasn't. And I don't think most pastors want their congregants to feel that way. They don't in, maybe intend to shun people when they are not in their good graces. That's not a pastor's job. A pastor is not a gang leader, right? A pastor is a shepherd. God's love flowing through them, ideally unimpeded. That was pretty chilling. And I, I do hope to get this stuff published soon so people can look through it themselves. But yeah, some of these numbers are quite high. In terms of some of the really scary stuff, over a quarter, 28% of women report being pressured to stay in an abusive marriage by religious leaders at least once or twice. Uh, and considering that many or most marriages are probably not abusive, I don't have the data on that, but I, I'm guessing that most of them are not abusive. That's a big number, 28%. So yeah, let's say 40% of marriages of people taking the survey, that's a guess, were actually abusive at any point. That's three quarters of them were pressured to stay in it. 
And actually 18% of men report being pressured to stay in an abusive marriage at least once or twice as well. And over 50% say they have witnessed women being pressured to stay in unfaithful or abusive marriages in a church setting. So that kind of keep things together because of, for whatever reason, if it's mis guided spirituality or if it's keeping the team intact or whatever it is, uh, a lot of misuse of sort of religious power around abusive marriages. That's really concerning. There's some really concerning stuff around LGBTQ discrimination. I could go on, but you get the idea. I'm aware that these findings haven't been published yet, but I'm wondering if on your podcast, the You Have Permission podcast, you've taken up any of this data or any of these results, or if you've talked to any of these other researchers, and that might be a place where we could direct listeners to go and get some more information. Definitely. There are a number of episodes on spiritual abuse because of my obvious interest in it, including a kind of a spiritual abuse 101 with Paula Swindle, and then both talking about what she found, and this direction towards healthy spiritual communities with Lisa Oakley. And I can get you links to those two episodes. Well, Dan Koch, it has been a pleasure to talk to you and to learn more about your research. I realize that you're just at the beginning of your academic career, your scholarly career, but it's exciting to see just what you've begun to unearth. I did not grow up in a religious tradition, but I have a lot of friends who I watched from the sidelines sort of go through some of these abusive moments and it leaves scars. And so I'm grateful very much that you have taken the time to do this research on spiritual harm and abuse. I'm especially grateful that you took the time to talk about it with me and my listeners today. David, thank you so much, man. Appreciate it. We've been speaking today with Dan Koch. He's the host of the podcast called You Have Permission, and he's a doctoral student in counseling psychology at Northwest University in Kirkland, Washington. His research focuses on spiritual harm and abuse. He's just done a major survey as part of his doctoral work. We've been talking about some of his results, and he will be publishing them and doing more research in the coming months and years. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.